entirely too much coffee. Apologies in advance for that. Everything's gotten really hectic. <laughs> I don't know why. If everyone's realized that it's going to be the end of the year, it's like, yes, but also pandemic. Calm down. Calm down. Anyway, um, hi. Thank you to everyone who has said such lovely things to me about my 150th episode with Eleanor. Everybody loves Eleanor. Of course, she's the best. Uh, she's been on a couple of times before, actually. So if you want more Eleanor, check out episode 30, in which we do a little bit of a close reading. And uh, episode 101, in which I berate Eleanor about holding on to books that she really should have chucked out a long time ago. That one's really, really fun. Um, and thank you also for all the kind words about my interview on Slea Ricketts with Matthew Buckley-Smith. I had an absolute ball. Um, I can't wait to do it again. Hopefully won't get in too much trouble as a result. Uh, super, super fun to talk with him. And yeah, I always love to hear from you. I'm really bad at checking Facebook. I'm less bad at checking Twitter. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out anytime. I had a really interesting and lovely note from a listener uh, who shall remain nameless, um, who said, I liked what Eleanor had to say about why she doesn't submit work. I certainly agree that when a poem of mine is published, I don't believe it's being read. In fact, mostly I just feel like it's being buried. I've taken the view that getting published in journals is primarily about building a CV and demonstrating persistence, things which may come in handy when applying for grants or to publishers. Buried. I've been thinking about this word since getting this email. Um, from someone who's a very accomplished poet and will soon have a book out. Um, yeah, okay, so let's say it's true. No one reads anything in any literary journal. Let's let's take that as a, a baseline assumption. Even if that's true, if your poem gets published in a journal, it still means that someone who has sat there and read hundreds, in some cases, over a thousand poems, has read yours and said, this is going to look good on my journal, in my journal. Um, I'm thinking about both online and print there. Um, so that's not nothing. That's definitely not nothing. But I don't think this listener is too far off the mark. And let me, let me explain what I mean by that just through my own experience because you might be someone who's listening to this who subscribes to all the journals and reads them all cover to cover you might be somebody who edits a journal who's listening to this in which case I'd love to talk to you about this but for me okay I was signed up for all the big all the big journals uh, across Australia and um there was some kind of package deal where you could you could sign up to all of them at once. And I did that, honestly, because I wanted to get into them. And because there was a, 
an expectation that, you know, you're going to read the journals that you're submitting to. That's a very, very reasonable expectation. Um, and in some cases, you did need to be a subscriber to submit. Or the deal was, if you submitted and your poem got accepted, you weren't going to get payment, but you would get a subscription. All that's like, you know, I'm not going to debate financial models for literary journals. Like, it's tough. It's, it's incredibly tough. And like anyone who does it is clearly doing it out of love. Um, so whatever financial model works, to whatever extent it does, more power to you. So, yeah, I had, had these journals. They were arriving, you know, every couple of months. One would show up in the, in the letterbox. And I would unwrap them and I would look at them and go, cool, cool, cool. Yes, great. Put that on the desk. Absolutely, I will read it. And I didn't. And then I wouldn't read the next one. And then I wouldn't read the next one. And then eventually there was this intensely stressful pile in the corner of the desk of stuff that I wanted to read on some level, very much felt like I should read, and just couldn't get up the motivation to do so. Now, that is possibly a lot more about me and my reading habits than the quality of the journals. And the times when I did open them up and flick through, occasionally I would find something completely mind-blowing that like really transformed my understanding of, of some corner of uh, the literary world or some topic I hadn't even thought about. Like there's good stuff in there. There's good poems in there. But then at the same time, I think what sort of sapped my motivation a bit was like often the subjects that were covered were just kind of heavy, like worrying topics, topics that felt very worthy and very earnest, not necessarily super fun to sit down and read about on a Saturday afternoon. And, you know, what does that mean? Does it, like, do I want Cosmo? Like, <laughs> I have pitched articles to literary journals and uh, occasionally those those articles have been, like, accepted and published. But, like, when I was doing that, I was definitely thinking, I hope this is serious enough. You know, I hope this is, this is what they want. And I definitely erred towards, like, a more serious bent with with the way that I was pitching. And then alongside those sorts of articles, there were often articles that I just felt like I couldn't get with as a non-academic reader, as somebody who wasn't, you know, working and, and studying at a, at a uni, um, purely because I just didn't feel like I had the vocab. You know, I didn't necessarily get the references. But again, does that mean that literary journals should dumb things down? I don't know. I hope not. And of course, there are exceptions. There are definitely exceptions. I do have journals that I'm still subscribed to. I don't read them immediately, but I do want to read them. And when I do sit down to read them, I am rewarded by being able to see really, really beautiful poems, discover people that I never would have otherwise. I think maybe there's like two approaches that really, really work. One is this journal some, somehow has just like buckets of money where they can make something that is just undeniably gorgeous that you want to keep on your shelf and keep going back to. The other end of the scale, it's like something really casual, 
um, stapled together, you know, easy to read in under an hour, just get a sense of something and then move on. And just so you know how much of a hypocrite I am talking about this, just before sitting down to record this episode, I submitted a poem to a journal. And yes, I had that sense in a way that maybe if on the very, very unlikely (laughs) um, case that it is accepted, it probably won't be read. But again, I think this is something I talked about last time with Eleanor. This is why I try to contact poets and say, you know, I loved your poem in such and such journal because without that it really does feel like it's being buried I guess the bottom line is I just wish I had more time and motivation to read and maybe you might hear that and say well journals should publish things that you want to read about or maybe you have the total opposite response again if this is work that you do and you want to talk about it let me know I'll I'll happily happily discuss with you yeah, I wish I wish I read more. I always wish I read more. I've never not wished that. So, what does any of that have to do with my interviewee this week? My final Poetry Month interviewee, Peter Goldsworthy, who lives and works in Adelaide. He's also a doctor, alongside being a poet and a writer of many other varieties of thing. Peter, uh, we had a bit of a back and forth between before I interviewed him he was really really patient and and very gracious with me and he sent me a piece that he'd written for the weekend Australian Um, and because I've been talking here about not reading I wanted to quote this little bit from his article so Peter uh, has been undergoing I'm not sure what stage he's at at the moment but he uh, he had a cancer diagnosis and he was undergoing treatment I think last year year before maybe 2019 and this experience kind of reminded him of the sort of slowing down that's required to read because he was essentially he was in isolation before all of us were in isolation Peter was already doing that and so this piece that he wrote for the Weekend Australian talked about that and in part of this really really lovely article he writes reading requires patience between working too hard at medicine and compulsively scribbling I'd read very little in recent years. I'd reached an L. Macpherson endpoint. I'd only read a book I wrote myself. Apocryphal in her case perhaps, but not in mine. The only book I was ever currently reading was the one I was currently writing. Slow, immersive reading was a joyous discovery. A rediscovery. When had I stopped? I can't list an entire 19th century's worth of novels. One will do. I tried reading The Mill on the Floss in bed when I was in high school, but it bored me to sleep and I didn't pick it up again. Last year I picked up Middlemarch, my wife's favourite novel, and had to take a sleeping pill at 3am to get away from it. And that was just the first night. Yeah, I wish wish that had been my experience over the last couple of years. Yeah, I I haven't read that much. It's not like I... (laughs) <laughs> not like I went back and like picked out all the classics from the shelf and went well now's the time yeah I really wish that I could say that was my experience but it has not been um 
Peter mentions in that article, the only book I was ever currently reading was the one I was currently writing. Peter's not just a poet. When I interviewed him, I didn't focus at all on the fact that he is a prize-winning novelist multiple times over. His work's been adapted for the stage. He has an AM for services to Australian literature. When I interview people who have this kind of a CV, I just put all that way in the back of my mind. And I think what you hear in this interview is a poet who still very much just wants to get the lines right and is really excited for everyone else to have a go at that as well. You write with a clarity and directness that is relatively distinctive among poets working in this country today. And I'm wondering, is there a particular reason for that? Or is that just the way that you write naturally? Oh, look, I think there are probably several reasons. A lot of reasons, maybe. Certainly the poets I first loved, you know, this is the late 60s when I came down from Darwin uh, to go to medical school and here. And um, at that time, there was a wonderful series, the Penguin Modern European Poets, and every month they'd bring out another. uh, And they were translations. And... um, you know, there's that definition of poetry is what is, maybe musical poetry is what is lost in translation. But the East European poets, in particular the Polish poets who'd been through the Second World War and, and not just, and, uh, you know, the great Yugoslavian poet too, Vasco Popa, but particularly Zbigniew Herbert and uh, uh, maybe Tadosh Rozovich. Um, I loved their irony. I loved their clarity. I loved that. In some ways they, were, they, they were, belonged to that anti-poetry movement in the sense that they were against they come through this war and this, and this terrible, the Holocaust, and, and, you know, Poland was the most affected country of all, you know, in that war, lost about a quarter of its population. Um, and it seemed as though, you know, there was that, I mean, it's a, almost a cliche now, the, the quote of Adorno that, uh, you know, poetry is impossible after Auschwitz, but they were trying to find a new way, a new poetry, a poetry that was unadorned, I suppose, that used irony, that used sarcasm, that was stripped of adjectives. That really appealed to me. Now, you know, I hadn't learned that myself by going through, but it's maybe it spoke to my laconic, you know, country Australian sort of sensibility in some way, you know, which also liked irony and liked um, the understated, I suppose. I mean, uh, Neruda, um, who uh, was by no means, you know, uh, an unadorned poet who was the opposite, who was a poet of excess, but he once did write that uh, a great line that, that resonated with me and that it was um, the blood of the children runs in the streets like the blood of children. And that's sort of the ultimate anti-metaphor poem, if you like. And, and so I think, you know, um, that was the, that were, they were, those were the roots of, of what I love, in my sensibility anyway, was... And then, you know, going through medicine and uh, uh, studying medicine, I think that was a great education, you know, for me in many ways. I, it, but it also developed a certain, like, black humour, I suppose, of, a way of coping with stuff, which is very common in, you know, doctor writers, that, uh, whether it's, you know, from Chekhov to William Carlos Williams, I think you find uh, that sort of, um, not so much plain speaking, but, uh, you know, it's um, not anti-metaphor or anti 
you know, poetry in 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 the way that um, those Eastern European poets were. But um, it's certain as a certain commonality and sensibility. I think it's funny because you know I think back to school and uh, the first poetry I can remember really loving was uh, in uh, in first year high school when our teacher, English teacher Ed Williams, would read to us and he read a book called Archie and Mahitabel, which uh, is uh, was a favourite book and it's um, the story of. Um, uh, cockroach Archie, who jumps onto a communicates with his friend the cat Mahitabel um, by diving headfirst onto a typewriter. So all the poems were lo lowercase because he couldn't, you know, like an E. E. Cummings poem. <laughs> and uh, but they were very, they were very amusing and very ironic and full of paradoxes. And I really liked that. Though paradoxically, that you know, when I got to senior high school, and um, the, my favourite poems were the, you know, like people like Keats uh, and Yeats, who were very much, you know, full of the full music, all the full special effects of poetry. So that uh, uh, that's what I loved most then. And uh, so that was sort of odd that I went from that to when I got to university. And there was a lot of political, you know, I used to write a lot of political poems. This was the Viet height of the Vietnam War as well. And they needed to be, you know, I was, I guess, a lot of it was bad poetry, but they were to the point, let's put it that way. So... Uh, I kind of, for a while, eschewed music, uh, but I've tried ever since, and they were very thin little ironic spines I wrote you know, initially, but I've tried to fatten them up. I'm still trying to fatten them up a bit. And, uh, and I've always liked, uh, I've always felt this music in them, though, in the, and, and metaphor in mine. You know, I've always, I've never, never turned my back on that. Mm. Mm. So tell me a little bit about the role of writing in your life over the past few years. I know that you've had some health challenges alongside the ever-present global challenge that we've all been living with. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I, I was thinking about, well, I've been writing a book, a book of poems, um, which I call The Cancer Finishing School, but also keeping a journal, which I call The Cancer Finishing School. I'm not sure. How, and they, so the poems sometimes pop out of the journal. What's so special about my cancer? Well, nothing really. I mean, uh, you know, the billion stories of cancer is there. Why should there be another one? I, and, uh, you know, okay, a doctor writing about cancer, his own cancer, maybe adds a certain ironic angle and, and maybe a bit of gallows humour as well. Um, I guess in the, in the idea of, the, of calling it the cancer finishing school, I mean, it's, it's a nice title, but what lessons has it learnt, you know, Besides whether it's going to finish me off or not, you know, it's uh, I like I like the idea, and so maybe I'll find um, I'll find a few lessons that are worth sharing with others. I, I was thinking the other day, you know, when I actually wrote it, wrote it down, you know, when when the writing's on the wall, maybe it's helpful to set uh, some of it down in words, and uh, certainly there's a therapeutic thing, obviously, in in doing that. Whether it's worth sharing with others or has any value, I, I, you know, I guess I'll find when I get to the end of the, the book or the poems. Um, so, but the, you know, I don't, I kind of think, you know, I would, I'd write anyway. I mean, it's a compulsion every day, so I, I get a bit sulky if I don't produce a sentence that I like each day. I mean, I produce a lot, I produce a lot that I don't like, like all of us. But uh, so I, I, I guess I would write about it anyway. So whether, I, you know, I needed to or not, I... Often when you have chemotherapy, you're on high-dose steroids, uh, uh, corticosteroids as well, dexamethasone. And, uh, well, A, it stops your 
prevents you sleeping and it also makes you a little bit uh, hypermanic and uh, notoriously. And uh, I, I do find, you know, I'm often jumping out of bed and uh, getting stuff down on paper in, in a rush, whether it's, you know, in the morning, sometimes it doesn't look that good, but sometimes it does. And uh, it's hard to tell anyway for me. So there's, there are a lot of reasons, I guess, in this last few years I've found uh, it necessary and useful uh, to write about it. What's the point of another book about cancer, I was thinking, and, then, and uh, this is how it begins anyway, but when I was telling one of my cancer patients, uh, I was saying, um, I'm planning to write a book about my own cancer. And he said, make sure you write the ending first. <laughs> and uh, that, so I thought, hey, there's the beginning of this book. And uh, since I put that down, a lot of the thoughts in my journal uh, and uh, meditations uh, started, a, I could say, a form, you know, built around my journey plus the journeys of many of my patients and the lessons I've learned from them. I remember an interview with Clive James from relatively recently and he said he was still working at that time in his life toward the perfect poem. But you seem to have a fairly relaxed attitude about writing in general. Is perfection important? Is it something that you strive for? Oh, look, look the, the search for perfection too long can, you know, paralyse you. Uh, sometime, at some point you've got to let things go and let them, you know, go out and like, novels in particular. You can always, it doesn't matter, you can carry can turn left or right when, it, when, when she comes to a corner, you know. Um, you get, there's always arbitrary stuff that uh, in a novel, I guess. And so, I mean, uh, someone once said the best reason to publish something is to stop yourself tampering with it anymore. And you do have to come to that point. But I think you can come to that point more contentedly with a poem, <laughs> say a short story or a novel. Short stories, you can get them pretty well. They're pretty well perfect. A novel, okay, a poem, I think a poem's like a joke in some ways. You know, when we, we tell a joke, I mean, a joke is a species of poem, I've always thought. You, you, know, you have to get the timing, the rhythm, the words right. You know, we all hear or we all tell jokes occasionally, we get something slightly wrong, one word left out doesn't work. Well, the great poems are like that. Um, and uh, the most perfect poems are like that. They have reached a certain point where if you tamper more, you're going to wreck them. And um, so, but on the other hand, as I say, you can, I mean, I, the first novel I ever tried to write, I wrote about I don't know, 40 drafts. It's better, I never published it. It was about a mathematician. It had mathematics in it too. And uh, I used to, I had to keep it in the, uh, I had a cold cupboard. I used to say it's the first novel in the history of literature that's taller than its writer, you know, with all these drafts. And, uh, and I learned through that, I think, that, you know, you can be paralyzed. That paralyzed me for several years. I mean, and so I, how do you find that balance? I, when to let go, well, that's going to be, you know, okay, some, sometimes you can write in a first draft and it has that spontaneity and you don't want to destroy that spontaneity by too much tampering either. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of stuff that's spontaneous just needs to be worked. And that's, I think, different for every poem and as well as every poet. I really want to open this conversation up too to people who are listening who might feel like the House of Poetry is not open to them. It's not something that they are allowed to do for whatever reason. And you're a writer with a long and established career and I wanted to ask what you might say to somebody in that position who has a maybe a curiosity about poetry but doesn't feel that permission to try? Oh, well, look, I think every speech act is a, a miracle 
of creativity. And I think, uh, you know, I, I mean, this is, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll start big, but, you know, our brains, which are the most complex uh, organisms we know of in the universe so far, I mean, they're miraculous jellies. And uh, the la their language, the language act, uh, even when we utter cliches, it's, that's just a miracle. So, and I hear every day, I mean, I'm like, you know, I see people all my life from every walk of life and every person I've ever met uh, has just in conversation, just whether it's joking, whether it's ironies, whether it's a way of looking at the world is unique and magical and poetic. And so I think everyone has poetry in them. And, uh, I, and I, you know, I think just in moments of emotion, powerful emotion, we all reach for metaphors. Just can't help dragging in metaphors in moments of emotion. And I just think, so that stuff's hardwired into our brains, that the, making connections, our brains are connecting mechanisms. So I, I've always believed in the, in, in the kind of... Um, that, that poetry, like, well, like music, is hardwired into our brains. It's templates. Just as languages, we know that, we accept that. But so are, uh, certainly so are the templates of, of music, rhythm and, and, cause this is the way we had to, re we remembered stuff before we had uh, writing, you know, through poetry and music. That's why we, all, we remember all the nursery rhymes from, you know, our childhoods. So poetry's in all of us and uh, go for it, you know, <laughs> let it out. And there's what I'd say to anyone. Just as a last question before I ask you to read a poem of your own, what would you love to see more of in the way we talk about poetry in this country, in the poetry that gets produced? What excites you and what would you like to amplify if you could? Well, one thing, I guess, is having great English teachers at school and a lot of people seem to have bad experiences of poetry teaching at school. Uh, it's magic. Uh, but that that may have changed for all I know. My, uh, you know, I've got a lot of grandkids now, and uh, I'm waiting to see what happens. Um, but I'd say, you know, there are 25 million poets in this country. That's you know, amplifying what I've said. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we all want to read every poem by 25 million people, but uh, they're all capable of it, and they're going to find in in moments of emotion, they're going to write it, or it's going to be in their heads. Just as you know, all of us have a vague idea. Every human being probably has a vague idea of our funeral and what, you know, there's some great poems we might want. So we all love it, even if we don't think we do. We all, at weddings, at funerals, you know, the great ceremonies that we still partake in, um, now we're mostly post-religious, um, we, we know what we want there. I mean, what we want there is music and poetry. And, uh, and they're, they're, you know, and they're, you know, they're cousins from, in, in, from when we were hunter-gatherers. Uh, they went together. Um, so in extremists, you know, or in moments of powerful emotion, you know, a hell of a lot of people have written love poems and, um, I'm sure to, to loved ones. And, um, I'd, uh, I'd like to, you know, maybe that's what I'm up to now, you know, in a different kind of extremist, extreme emotion. Um, you know, not, not, I'm not writing death poems, but <laughs> I've kind of, I've, I've found it, uh, you know, as Samuel Johnson said, uh, the, you know, the knowledge that you're going to be hanged in a fortnight concentrates the mind. Well, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't plan on that, being hanged in a fortnight. <laughs> in fact, not for quite a while. I'm doing pretty well on my chemo. But, um, uh, 
whatever your experience is, you know, and if it's an important, emotionally important experience, or even if it's just a sort of a sarcastic or ironic political comment, um, let it rip, yeah. Would you like to read a poem to take us well, out? Without being too downbeat, I, I got, I, we could end this upbeat or downbeat, but since I've been talking about what's been coming out of me in the middle of the night, and this was one that did come out in you know, sort of a single draft, I mean, I played with it. And a friend suggested a different ending, but uh, just an slightly alternate ending, which I took. Um, but it's a, it's a poem, and it, it's not how I feel at all now. I'm, a couple of years ago, I wasn't so optimistic. And uh, so I wrote this one, and uh, it's called Tomorrow. I loved tomorrow from the first day we met. Her secret promises, her sweet backward glances. She was always the last thing on my mind before sleep. She made me feel special. Often we talked all night, her hopes and plans for us, our future together. Years passed, passion faded. I began to take her for granted. At times she disappointed me. At times we quarreled. But when I needed a hand, tomorrow's was always there for me, reaching back over difficult midnights, hauling me across. When did we begin to grow apart? When did she start telling me lies? When did I wake to find she had no time left for me at all? Mm -hmm.